1: Welcome back. Staff at our long-term care homes are at a breaking point. That is the conclusion of two new reports that expose the high level of violence, abuse and harassment in these institutions. We'll be talking to one of the authors of an in-depth study of this violence, while a separate poll of more than a thousand long-term care workers in Ontario found that the vast majority have been victims of violence, with almost half experience experiencing pushing or hitting on a daily or weekly basis. Some 63% said they had faced sexual harassment at least once on the job, and 43% said they had experienced sexual assault. And here is a particularly sad part. Many consider it part of the job so common they don't even officially reported. I want to hear from you. Uh, We have often had Personal support workers calling in if you've worked in this environment, or if you have a loved one in a nursing home, you've experienced perhaps their violence that's patient on patient. It's a big problem, and we would like to discuss all aspects of it. The numbers to call 416 360 0740, toll free 1 866 740 4740, and we're going to get at it right away. We have Miranda Ferrier, who is the president and founder of the Ontario Personal Support Workers Association, Heather Duff, chair of QP Ontario's health sector, and Dr. James Brophy, one of the researchers of this new study. Welcome to you all. Thank you so much for being with us.
2: Thank you. Thank you for
1: having me. Okay, let us start with Dr. Brophy. Uh, first of all, were you surprised by these results? What really jumped out at you?
2: Well, um, I was, I suppose, when, we, when Margaret Keith and I first started the research, we were horrified with what we were learning in the focus groups. Uh, when the poll came out after our study was completed, I wasn't the slightest bit shocked by the numbers because that's exactly what we were being told, that physical violence, verbal uh, abuse, racial and sexual harassment, and sexual assault was so pervasive that um, it was, as you said, just considered part of the job.
1: Where was most of it coming from? I mean, what percentage uh, was from patients and from patients uh, with dementia? Um,
2: Our our study didn't really sort that out. Uh, What I can tell you is that our study was focused on what they call type two violence, which is uh, violence uh, by residents or uh, family members uh, on staff and it is the most overwhelming uh, occurrence of violence in these institutions. Uh, it far exceeds what we know to be resident on resident violence or staff on um, resident violence, all of which, uh, let us say right away, is totally unacceptable. There's no excuse for any of it, but the most common uh, <clears throat> violence is the violence directed uh, against staff
1: from the residents.
2: From the residents, uh, let's and uh-huh.
1: uh, Miranda. I mean, this is probably not news to you.
3: Uh, no, it's not news at all, Libby. Uh, I mean, from an association standpoint, we hear about abuse in long-term care from our members on a daily basis. Uh, the sad part is, it is uh, looked upon as something that is normal, that is accepted in long-term care. Uh, But we're finding that more and more PSWs, uh, personal support workers, are starting to stand up and say, I will be silent no more. This is not normal. It is not normal to get my nose broken on the job in long-term care. It is not normal to be harassed uh, verbally or, or sexually assaulted on the job. This is a serious issue. Heather Duff? Yes, I, I mean, I concur.
4: None of this is news. Our members have been telling us uh, this for quite some time. Um, I mean, one of the things that's um, shocking and saddening to me, uh, aside from all of these um, stats that prove how how pervasive this issue is, is, is also what we're hearing from the workers about how their uh, employers in the long term care management are trying to discourage them from reporting it, um, from calling the police if it's necessary, um, you know, that they've been bullied and some of them have even been threatened to be fired um, yep. for wanting to report it.
1: Uh, I'd like to follow up on that. Uh, Miranda, do your members tell you about that as well, that the employers aren't being helpful often?
3: Oh, absolutely. Uh, I totally concur uh, with Heather. I mean, it's it's one of those situations where we get phone calls from PSWs asking us what their rights are in the workplace because they get confused because they'll go to try to report something to an administrator or a director of care and they'll downplay it and not encourage them to phone the police. And, and really what we're finding is that it, it seems to be that kind of idea that if, the, if it's the staff being abused then it's quote-unquote okay. But if it's the residents being abused, then, you know, by rights, everything goes crazy and police get involved, etc., etc. So there has to, you know, there's been a lot of talk surrounding this, Libby, for many, many years. A yeah. lot of research surrounding this. Now is the time to act. We need to stop talking and start acting.
1: Okay. Dr. James Brophy, I don't know if your research covered this aspect, but when... When I talk to experts like the people we're talking to now, usually what they focus on as a possible solution is more staff and more highly trained staff. The people who are in long term care are older and sicker. There's more dementia. And uh, uh, that's uh, is that what you think we need?
2: oh absolutely uh, mm-hmm. uh, everywhere we went and we were in seven different communities talking to people who were employed in 13 different facilities and so i think we've got a, a pretty good snapshot of what's going on in in long-term care um, there's no question that the understaffing and underfunding have reached as I, we say in the article a breaking point um i also want to say that i <clears throat> i applaud the people you're interviewing now for speaking out, um, and I'm glad to hear that more PSWs are willing to do so, but I can just tell you from our research, there's tremendous fear and intimidation uh, and a fear of reprisals for anyone who speaks out. Um, mm-hmm. I think that that's a very important point because it's one of the reasons that the public, it, this whole issue has been kept from the public. Uh, I was involved, have been involved in occupational health research for 30 years, and it was shocking to me to see such what could only be called a public health epidemic going on in these uh, resources in terms of what was happening to the staff and not be aware of it. I mean, that was a very big shock, and I tried to understand, well, why didn't I know about this? Well, it didn't take long. Uh, Our focus, uh, our group interviews would always start with people wanting to be assured that their identity would not be brought out, that they could be protected because they feared. Because as you may know, uh, a, a nurse in North Bay spoke out about this issue and she was fired and the Canadian Union of Public Employees spent almost a year and lots of resources to finally get her job back. Everybody in the focus groups knew about this. Everybody had their own personal story about what happens if you try to raise this, if you report this, if you, you know, really advocate on on issues. Having said all that, More staffing and more funding, which is essential to get at the structural issues, in and of itself won't be enough. We need serious regulatory controls here. We need an active and aggressive Ministry of Labour and Workers' Compensation system to be intervening here. Ontario has a horrible record of enforcing occupational health and uh, laws uh, and and in terms of the employers.
1: Well, I mean, you're you're talking about the employers, uh, but how do you enforce this on, on, you know, residents who don't, they don't have capacity? Well, I, I think
2: the, the first people that will tell you that they they are sympathetic to all of that are the are the staff at these facilities, are the nurses and the, the personal support workers. They're, they're very mindful of all of that, but they say if if, if we're going to have a, a population that you know can be aggressive, can can trigger violence, then we need to create an atmosphere and an institution that will deal and direct itself toward that. So you need you don't need one person taking care of 25, 30 people on, on nights. And then other uh, person is often the other wing who can't hear you or whatever. There's no way you have the resources. And one of the things that came through for me on all of this research was how much of the long-term care institutions are now in private hands. Mm-hmm. I mean, We have a universal health care system, which we all respect, and expect. But
1: they, 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 when you uh, call them on this, they say they have the same rules. Have you broken down the numbers of instances in public versus private?
2: Well, first, I mean, I think there is a major difference. I mean, first of all, remember now, these institutions are guided by their bottom line. They're for-profit institutions. Right,
1: but they have so, to, to abide by the same rules in terms of, of safety and care and all of that.
2: The experience of the long term care staff is that it 's not the same, but the other thing that is really driven here is because it 's for profit, the organization of work is very different, so it 's very task oriented you know that they described this in great detail of how, you know, you start in the morning to get a whole group of people, 12, 15 people up and ready for breakfast and how you go into the rooms at 6.30, flick, plaque, put, uh, flick on the light and try to go through a whole series of motions to get the person ready to be able to go to the dining room. Well, Anything, I mean, I couldn't imagine how this is done. I mean, it was seemed to be overwhelming. But if there's any problem, if somebody is tired or agitated or whatever, it throws you off for the whole process. That task-driven organization of work is coming directly, in my view, out of pressure from the private sector. Because it's the most efficient way for them to make money on this. And that's what I think is a real issue.
1: Let's get to the phones. We've got Jean in St. Catharines. Hello, Jean. Hi. Um, I totally agree with the last uh, the last caller. Um,
5: I spent the last 13 years of my career working as an RPN on uh, night shift in long-term care. Um, I took early retirement due to burnout. Um, I worked with CLAC Chris, uh, Union, that's the Christian Labour Association, Um, And the main thing we were fighting for, and I believe they're still fighting for more staff and more government spot inspections, not to tell them when they're coming. They tell them when they're going to come to to inspect a place. And what happens usually, um, everything's neat and tidy, all the paperwork's in order, and it doesn't matter whether there's a patient in the bed or not. Some, you know, something's got to be done about that. It's no good throwing all this money, dollar after dollar, to these nursing homes because ever there's a P for private, there will always be a P for profit. And yeah. it all does not go to frontline care. Okay. So it's terrible. They're always short-staffed. And I have two granddaughters. One's doing her RN course, one's doing her RPN, and I've told them both, if ever you see anything that's not right, don't be afraid to be a whistleblower.
1: Good, good for you for telling them that and interesting this whole issue of burnout. And, uh, certainly sorry to hear about your experience, but that's one of the issues. And mm-hmm. you hear from a lot of long-term care homes mm-hmm. is that it's, it's not even that they might be unwilling, but it's hard to get staff because mm-hmm. this is a very difficult job with a very high burnout it rate. Is. And as a, as a
5: nurse, um, my mother got Alzheimer's, and I looked after her for as long as I possibly could, and I just couldn't do it 24-7, you know, on my own. And I put her in the what I thought was one of the best nursing homes, which it did turn out to be pretty good. But an, another resident, she hadn't been in a couple of weeks and pushed her down. She fractured her arm, oh fractured God. her hip, and then had to wait a week at the hospital because, uh, to get surgery.
1: Oh, my God. I'm (laughs) sorry to hear that, Jean. Thanks very much for your call. You're welcome. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's terrible to hear these stories. Uh, Miranda, what's your take on what your members need?
3: What our members need is, I mean, and this has been going back so long. Right, Libby. I mean, we've all been talking about the short staffness in long term care. What some of your uh, listeners might not know is I am a personal support worker. I worked those floors of long term care. I was working in long term care in 2006, and we had this issue in 2006. So, and it's only gotten worse from there. So if we don't supply more personal support workers more scrubs on the floor in long-term care we need to give relief i mean long-term care is supposed to be not a terrible experience for the worker or for the people that are in that home i mean we always say to psw that that is not their workplace that is a, the resident's home and we need to treat it as such why can't our government supply that it seems like they're, you know, they, they can supply a lot of other things and a lot of other money to go other places, but they can't seem to supply enough staff in long-term care. Burnout is a real issue. Burnout is associated across the province for personal support workers. We are losing PSWs from this profession at such a rapid rate, Libby, that we cannot replace them fast enough. I,
1: I get that. Do you agree that a problem, that this is more of a problem in, in the private homes versus
3: the public? Right. I worked in both. Yep. Uh I was I was very I was fortunate to work in both as a personal support worker. And you know what? There is a major difference between for profit and not for profit. And it is There's a huge difference. And what is the difference? The difference I found when I worked in for profit is, is exactly what James said is he said, you know, you get up, yes, turn on the light at six AM, you start moving the factory line as I like to call it, and so you can get them out to breakfast on time and you know, God forbid there's an issue because then it's gonna cut into your time of getting these individuals ready and up for their breakfast. When I worked in not for profit, it was like a dream, uh, really truthfully. We had so many supplies, we didn't have to scrape for incontinence products. We didn't have to beg and plead for apple juice as opposed to Kool-Aid for our residents. You know, we had, if someone wanted to sleep till 9 a.m. in the morning and then get up, they were allowed to sleep till 9 a.m. in the morning and then get up. So that was my experience. And it's a huge difference between for-profit and not-for-profit homes. Interesting.
1: Heather Duff?
4: Yeah, they're both totally correct, and what we know is that there is no minimum standard hours required for any long-term care home to provide. That was removed in the 90s under the um, Premier Mike Harris, what used to be 2.25. So though there is much regulation in terms of long-term care, there isn't anything in regards to how many hours of care that people have to uh, provide to our residents. And so we do see uh, a difference between, uh, you know, municipal charity and uh, for-profit homes, and the for-profit homes um, consistently provide the least amount of hours of care. Uh, to residents which leads to burnout which leads, which leads to increased violence because you don't have the staff available to uh, to help even with uh, patients or residents that have behavioral issues because if you walk into a, a resident's room you know first thing in the morning and wake them up and say okay we've got two minutes to get you out of bed and they have dementia they're going to react violently um, because the, you're rushing them along if you don't have the appropriate level of staff um, then you can't manage those that have behaviors and let's face it not all of them do have uh, behavioral or cognitive issues um, and as well as the family members are also part of the, the, the cause and so they get agitated because they see that their loved ones aren't uh, receiving the amount of care that they need so it does all come down to the need for legislative standard minimum of care uh, which has a bill on the floor right now of uh, on the house bill 33 um, which would allow for the government to implement a standard of four hours of minimum care a day per resident. Okay, well, uh, and let's this would go a long way.
1: Yep, yeah, that would go a long way. Let's see where it goes. Uh, we're basically out of time. Uh, people, if I couldn't get your call, remember, Free For All Friday is coming up. And thank you so much to Miranda Ferrier, Heather Duff and Dr. James Brophy. We
0: appreciate your time. Thank you. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to 1. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to 1. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to 1. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads.